Having car problems? Well, with Rhoda, getting them fixed is as easy as ordering takeout. They'll come pick up your car for free, do any repair or maintenance needed, and return it right to your driveway. They'll even give you a complimentary video inspection of your car so you can see what needs to be done. Perfect for those of us that maybe aren't so car savvy. Book your appointment online at roda.com. And lucky for you, CityCast listeners get a 20% discount on any service for up to $100 off. Just use the code CityCast20. Here's what DC is talking about. The biggest local news story in a long time, which is the congressional vote to overturn a DC bill for the first time in decades. CityCast DC producer Julia Karen and newsletter editor Kayla Cote-Stemmerman are here to break down what it means and what happens now. Plus, we're talking about the weird trend of dress codes for DC bars, and Kayla is going to tap her newsletter knowledge to tell us about the best of weekend events. Today is Friday, March 10th. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. Hey, Julia. Hey, Mike. How are you doing, man? I'm all right. Hey, Kayla. Good morning. So the horrible tragedy of the D.C. criminal code rewrite ended uh, Wednesday night in kind of resounding fashion with uh, a surprisingly lopsided vote in the Senate, 81 to 14. Sheesh. To, uh, yeah, to overturn Ouch. the uh, the bill. That's a veto-proof majority. Not that it matters because the president has said he will sign the bill under D.C.'s home rule. We have self-government, but any bill that passes the D.C. Council uh, within a certain number of days, I think it's 60 days, Congress can vote to disapprove of the bill and it gets rejected. This hasn't happened in 30 years. So literally as long as I've been alive. Correct. Damn. Correct. <laughs> I think those two things are related. Uh, <laughs> blame it on me. It's fine. Just blame it on me. So look, at this is a thing there's been a lot of anger. There were protests at uh, Union Station. There's the there's an effort to tie in home rule and statehood in Washington to racial justice, which is a long part of its history, but has been less emphasized by people in that uh, movement in recent years. But there's a lot, a lot of anger on the part of people who supported this criminal code rewrite, as well as on the part of people who opposed it. The mayor had vetoed it. She got overridden. She lost. But, uh, you know, in her view, and in a lot of people's view, it was a thing that was duly passed. This is a democracy. And people who don't answer to the voters here don't get to overrule those voters, don't get to legislate for us. And, uh, and they shouldn't be doing this. That was the mayor's position. There's, I think, also some going to be some recriminations there's, uh, on, the, on the local level. You know, we have a, uh, a very progressive D.C. council. I expect it's, it's more progressive than the mean citizen of Washington. Bowser herself, who is comparatively a moderate, got overwhelmingly uh, reelected. I think it's totally plausible that this criminal code rewrite, which rewrites like a hundred year old criminal code that was like everybody, prosecutors and defenders and everyone else said was in need of a rewrite just to rationalize it and bring it up to date. Um, I, I could believe that a majority of our citizens would favor it. I suspect it's nothing like the unanimous majority in the council. But uh, that's kind of neither here nor there on a principles matter because it passed and it, it should get to stay. So I think part of this is a timing issue more than anything. We 
tried to get this criminal code through at a time when people feel that crime is on the rise in the city, particularly carjackings. Like, this doesn't just magically make it okay to, like, carjack and burgle and rob. It, you know, makes the maximum penalties lower, and it replaces the sentencing range with a new tiered system. It just makes the penalties less draconian and brings them up to date now. And also, like, President Biden, a Democrat, who has said he's in favor of home rule, he tweeted about it. He's like, I'm in favor of home rule, but I, I just can't pass this. He has to run for re-election again in 2024, which, like, I know we don't want to think about, but that's a year away. And being the, like, soft-on-crime president I think is not the move right now. So I think this is kind of a political posturing for the rest of the country saying, I am tough on crime. Look at what I'm doing in this particular instance. Right. It's also ironic because even though some of the penalties were lowered, they were still much harsher than a lot of the states whose representatives voted against this bill. Right. right. And I think that if you start thinking of, of these arguments in like logical terms, you know, it all goes haywire. It doesn't make right? any like, sense. Yeah. It's, it's very slippery slope. We're being lectured about uh, public safety by representatives of some of the most violent, murder-ridden states in the country. We're being lectured about poverty by some of the representatives of states with the you know highest poverty and inequality in the country. Like on that level, it's kind of crazy. But this is the reality we're in. This is the country we have. This is the constitution we have. This is the home rule legal framework that exists. And I found myself just kind of amazed at how sort of detached from like the national conversation a lot of the activists in local politics were. And this is like not an atypical thing. We're in such close proximity to national power in Washington, but the, the local and national exist in these different worlds and often like see each other in kind of a kabuki theater, sort of exaggerated, caricatured way. So are you thinking there's a media failure there in terms of conveying what's in this thing? In terms of saying like, here is what this bill actually says. Yes. Like, why didn't someone like and and I don't watch the Sunday shows. I am guilty of this. I'm not a fan of TV news. But like, why isn't someone on the council like going on a Sunday talk show and talking to a reporter and saying, here is what is actually in this thing. And oh, by the way, again, we're not saying all of these things are legal. We're just getting them up to date because our criminal code is literally a century old. I think in a moment when people are scared. Yes. That kind of nuance is really hard. Even the most articulate and uh, brilliant communicator, and the DC Council does not seem to have a lot of those, would have a hard time making that point in a moment when people are petrified and perhaps thinking irrationally. You know, posted this on our Instagram and people were not fans of the bill. I mean, you know, they're saying like they shouldn't have afforded such a deft tone bill. They should have compromised, you know, with the mayor. They shouldn't have pressed such a progressive bill. It's really sad to see Washingtonians happy about Congress overruling us, but it's not unreasonable. I mean, I think that's kind of the colonial mentality, right? That like people say they want some statehood, but are actually like if they can work the system so that they get what they want through other means, like having Congress do it, that works for some people. But look, at, there is another like red meat for right wing media bill that has passed the D.C. Council and, and is going to face a disapproval vote on the Hill. And I have a hard time imagining the disapproval vote will not succeed. Yeah. So actually, we're starting a new local civic section in our newsletter. And this was the perfect opportunity to talk about what's going to be happening next. This new bill, D.C.'s Local Resident Voting Rights Amendment Act, passed through 
D.C. Council at a similar time, and the bill would allow non-citizen residents to vote in local elections so long as they're over 18 and they have lived here for more than 30 days. So it was the House was not eager to play along. Um, in the end, 42 Democrats, they all voted to block the bill. So now it's in the hands of the Senate, but the Senate only has 30 days to block it, um, which means that they would have to vote on the bill before March 14th if they want to reject it. So pretty soon. But if it is adopted, D.C. would be the biggest jurisdiction in the country to have, you know, a a non-citizens voting bill, which would be pretty cool. What do you guys think is going to happen? Tom Cotton, the the conservative Republican Mm -hmm. from Arkansas, was fundraising against this as of a couple weeks ago. And I am baffled as to to why they would uh, do this. It is kind of right at the nexus of like immigration and boating, which are two things that are enormously contentious and subject to demagoguery. As best I know, outside of a like rather small community of academics and professional advocates, nobody wanted this. Was anybody saying like, oh, I really want my neighbor from the World Bank to be able to vote for ANC that nobody already votes for? I mean, it is true. This is not unique to Washington. It happens in, you know, I'm sure in like Ann Arbor and Berkeley and and a bunch of like very, you know, progressive sort of academic places. It's not like odious or anything, but the idea of like making this a priority that people would risk the city's um, home rule seems absolutely nuts for a thing that, as best I can tell, has no major constituency among the general public, particularly among the voting public. But I mean, there are advocates for this. I mean, you know, there's groups, including Claudia Jones School of Political Education, the DC Latino Caucus, DC for Democracy. There's all these local immigrant rights groups that have called for expanding the voting rights, you know, in DC and to engage, you know, these underserved communities. So it's not that there's no voice for this. But look, at these are narrow activist organizations, right? This is not a, a, a groundswell. I mean, this is city politics, right? A lot of city politics anywhere is about like getting your garbage picked up. You know, there's a groundswell of people who wanted like the alleys repaved because the alleys were in like terrible shape. Mm-hmm. This ain't that. Right. And, and this is like, once again, a timing issue. Like, what is President Biden doing when it comes to foreign policy and migrants? He's limiting the ability of migrants claiming asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. The administration has considered restarting the family detention policy for migrants, right? So, like, this is coming at a time when people are like, we got to be hard on immigration, too. And so I think what Mark Seagrave said yesterday about getting the message across to council saying you need to take in mind now, I guess, what the president and what the rest of Congress is going to say regarding this, I wonder how much that's going to impact the upcoming bills that are going to come through D.C. Council. Like, does that mean every single consideration we have, we got to think, oh, we got to ballpark it more moderate because even though like maybe the people of D.C. want this very certain thing, like we got to make it a little more moderate to just get it through to Congress. This is another one where I think the views of the D.C. Council are probably really out of step with most of the rest of the country, which is their right, but which is also going to prove like really problematic and dangerous because they start messing with stuff that really doesn't matter to you, that doesn't affect your life today, and it's abortion rights tomorrow. That's the slippery slope, and it's pretty scary to a lot of people. 
When was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, Avida's Return, which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. Get your tickets now at galatheater.org or call 202-234-7174. Julia, let's talk about something that Congress probably won't mess with, uh, <laughs> but maybe they should. I don't know. What do you think? Tell, t- tell us about dress codes in bars. So there was a big controversy over the last week or so for this bar called Bunker. It's a gay dance club. It was downstairs, all that stuff. They wanted to ban high heels and flip-flops from the bar. They said that they wanted to do this because, like, in order to get to the bar, you have to go down these, like, dimly lit concrete stairs it's dark, all of these things. I don't know if any of you have tried to dance at a club in high heels, but like the chances of breaking an ankle, very high. They received a lot of pushback on this, particularly from trans women, people who are effeminate or femme presenting, saying that it limits their options and abilities to express themselves. Bunker obviously reversed course over the last day or so. They now have it as a suggestion that you- A strong suggestion. A very strong suggestion. Wait, so was the motivation for this like- legal cover your butt you know Probably. is this like, like... Oh, we don't want to get sued by someone who breaks their ankle on the dance floor I think it might be more like you fell down the stairs, not like you're going too hard. That's probably true. I just I have a, I'm sort of pausing on the idea that high heels are like you know essential to your right to your identity as if it was like turbans with members of the Sikh community or something. Is that really the case? I think for some people who are like femme presenting, that is part of what they want to be. They want to show that they are like effeminate in some way and high heels because society has conditioned us to believe that that is something that we associate with women, with people who present as feminine. Yeah, in some ways, I guess that's the case. I think it's more of a matter like you're going out for the night, you're getting dressed up, you're putting your heels on. You don't know where you're going to be going for the night yet. Like you might not know you're going to this specific bar and then you show up looking super hot in your heels and you're turned away. I mean, that's that sucks. Like that's really that's like you're not going to be going to this club because of your heels unless you're going out knowing that you're going to go to this specific place and dressing accordingly, which I think is kind of a big ask. Okay, but the thing with like bars and restaurants, right, is that they're trying to create this whole ambiance. Absolutely. This whole vibe and and how your fellow diners and drinkers are dressed is part of that vibe. And so this is not like the first recent case of a place trying to uh, limit what people wear when they get there, you know, in the name of branding or marketing or something. Right. So I think people might remember that last year there was a Japanese restaurant called Shoto that got slammed for denying Chef Marjorie McBradley entry to the restaurant because she was wearing Burks. She was going there to eat with friends, something like that. And one of the other chefs, like, came in in orthopedic shoes and a ball cap, and, like, that was okay. But they drew the line at Birkenstocks. Like, that was, like, the last straw. El Centro, back in 2017, got in trouble for denying people in sneakers, but only selectively. There was a black patron who was turned away for wearing just, like, basic shoes. And then when people went into the club, they snapped photos and, like, 
a bunch of white people were wearing like Converse and sneakers and stuff like that. So yes, like I think part of this is an enforcement selectability thing where yeah. like if you're going to enforce the dress code like full sale, like if Bunker would have been like, you know what? No one in high heels allowed. Also, like every dude in flip flops and cargo shorts, like you also, you cannot be here. Like, fine. But I find that one thing that happens with dress codes is the enforceability just like really goes amok. And it's very, very selective in yeah. terms of that. Well, I think that's the problem. It's impo- It's basically impossible to enforce a dress code without bias, right? Mm. Like it depends on the bouncer. Like it depends on the, whoever is working there that night. Like it's not um, – it's impossible to enforce with consistency, which makes it really ripe for – these types of issues, which is why I think a lot of people have an issue with it. All right. So I'm planning to go out in, in high heels this weekend. Um, but Kayla, because you uh, edit our awesome Hey DC newsletter, you probably have way better plans. Yeah. Speaking of going out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot going on this weekend. You know, we have a full list in our newsletter today, as always, if you want to check it out. Um, but some of the highlights are some of the things that I will be going to. Um, this evening, at starting at 5, there's this art show happening called She DC Art Show. Uh, it's at La Cosecha and Union Market. And it's going to be, there's going to be over 200 local artists there. All the tickets and the sales go towards basically these mini grants that will be granted to sort of the winners of this art competition. But it looks great. I mean, it's a great area. You can get food. You can hang out. You can look at the art, talk to the artists. It's going to be a lot of fun. The next thing, um, we have a couple things going on on Saturday uh, that I would recommend. You may have heard our episode about DC's death doula. Well, she's going to be doing an event this weekend on Saturday at the Congressional Cemetery. She's pairing up with this viral TikToker, Rosie Grant, who has basically, she's has this project where she goes around and she cooks the recipes found on people's gravestones. Wait, that's so cool. Oh, my God. Which is wild, right? Um, And she has this whole account. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. The recipes are found on people's gravestones or the cooking is done on people's gravestones? Yeah. People on their gravestones will, like, put their favorite cookie recipe and then she'll go around and she'll bake them and try them and, like, see how good they are. How many gravestones have recipes? A lot, apparently. I mean, like, she's done dozens, at least. She gets pictures from around the country. Um, But she's originally from D.C., actually. I misunderstood. I thought you meant that these recipes were all on Congressional Cemetery gravestones. But you're saying they're all over the country. No, no, there are some, but not all of them. These are from around the country. It's a a cookie to die for. (laughs) Yeah, she'll be making a snickerdoodle recipe from a gravestone at the Congressional Cemetery for everybody to try. To be clear. if you want a gravestone cookie... Now's your chance. To be clear, if you had to put a recipe on your gravestone, guys, what would it be if you had to choose? That's hard. (laughs) That's really hard. Some sort of hair of the dog recipe because, you know, who knows? Maybe it'll help. Yeah, like a cocktail recipe. Ooh, fair enough. Fair (laughs) enough. Like your favorite old fashioned. Oh, my God. I don't know. Not cookies. I feel like that's too normal. I want to have my grave fitted with like a hot plate or like a a cooked (laughs) top. A full bar at Michael Schaefer's grave. Just a full bar into it. It's like the party I'll never leave. Exactly. Absolutely. There's also on Saturday morning, so tomorrow morning, 
there's going to be this day-long urban gardening form with like dozens of sessions on everything from how to start your seeds to sort of history lessons about, you know, like food disparities within D.C. It is at the Anacostia High School. I'm an urban gardener and I'm really excited about it. So you should definitely check it out if that's your thing. Can they teach me how to garden anything? I have a black thumb. I I cannot. Like plants die. I think so. I, it looks like it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they have like indoor, how to you know, grow indoor plants, outdoor plants, tomato, like they have every everything. You can stop. It's free. You can stop by for one session. You can go for the whole day. Actually, Kayla, like. maybe at your grave, you should have, you should plant like garden plants that can then be cooked into the recipe that will be oh, on your Oh my God. Stand. That's next level. Yeah. <laughs> that is crazy. Like have like a tomato sauce recipe or something yes. and then like have the tomatoes. I love that. I love that. Your soul will literally be in the Sunday gravy that people want to make. That's very meta. I will give it that. All right. Well, that sounds like an awesome weekend. And I hope you guys both enjoy yours. Thank you. Thank you, man. It's you always too. awesome to talk to y'all. And lastly, here is today's DC Life Hack. The Washington Women in Jazz Festival is happening right now. Check our show notes for the full schedule and ticket info. But one event you don't need a ticket for is tonight's All-Stars performance at the Westminster Church. Just show up. It's $10 at the door. Enjoy. And that is all for today here on CityCast DC. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilvey. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, chisel its URL into your gravestone, dc.citycast.fm. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. One is, you might have heard our episode on DC's death doula. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, we'll try that again. Death doula.